Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 168 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Hey, Tom, it's great to actually uh, see you in person at ABA Tech Show. You too, uh, 2016. Absolutely. We had some fun there, and there's some topics that will make it into the show. And uh, we uh, may have a new feature in the podcast based on some ideas that we have there. But on to this episode. In our last episode, we talked about the wildly popular new collaboration tool called Slack. Now we're moving out to the very edge of technology and looking into the future through new glasses. And that means virtual reality glasses. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we'll discuss the world of virtual reality, or as we're going to be referring to it, many already call it VR. In our second segment, uh, we'll share some tips on using or maybe not using public Wi-Fi and airline Wi-Fi. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, let's talk about virtual reality. I think there's no question that on the technology scene, at least lately in the last year or so, virtual reality technology is the hot new thing. Although, you know, frankly, and we're going to talk about this, it's been around (laughs) for a really long time. But although I think VR is cool, what's less apparent is how virtual reality might apply to legal technology. So we thought we'd take a look at it. We thought we'd kind of explain VR, figure out how it works, and see whether there's a there there for lawyers. Dennis, let's start and say, how are we defining virtual reality? And and should we also, as part of that, uh, mention VR's cousin, AR, or augmented reality? You know, Tom, this is the part of the show in the defining where I always know that your preparation means that you're going to have totally outworked me and you're going to have a much better definition than I do. But you're just setting it up, aren't you? No, I, I think the notion here is that this is a way of viewing of a reality, but basically revealing a 3D screen that we're sort of immersed in. And so I think it's that immersive notion. So as a practical sense, you're looking into goggles and it's giving you the feeling that you're inside a scene and you're able to act on it or act in it in an immersive sense. So it's not like the IMAX or, you know, 3D movies, but the goggles give you the sense that you're actually inside and there's some ability to interact. And so I think that the key word that I think of is that you're immersed in it and that in a way you're isolated from the outside reality. And that's a point we'll come back to. Augmented reality, on the other hand, so again, think in terms of glasses or goggles, but you're you're going to be able to to see the outside reality that you actually sit in. So you're not immersed in it and you're not completely inside the virtual world. You're actually seeing the outside world, but it's augmented in a way so that the computer system that you're connected to is giving you more information. 
you know, an example is you might be able to overlay a grid on what you're looking at or to pop up information about what's going on or to explain things in any number of ways. So there could be audio, there could be video, there could be little pop-ups, like I said, overlays, navigation information, that sort of thing. And that's sort of how, in my simple way, I think of virtual reality and how it compares to augmented reality. So how's that? I think that's uh, that's pretty good. Starting with augmented reality, it brings me to um, an app that I remember a couple of years ago that I think Google put out where you could hold up your phone if you were traveling somewhere and you wanted to learn more about where you were, you could hold your phone up and look through. It would use the camera so you could look through the camera part of your phone and it would show you, obviously, what the real world looked like. But then once it started to recognize the landmarks that are around you, things would pop up and say, oh, this is the such and so building or this is this monument that was erected in 1814. And it would provide that helpful context for what what you're seeing around you. And I think virtual reality is literally that. It's meant to replicate a reality that you're not actually a part of. And so I think that the easiest way to think of virtual reality, the way that I think you've really said it, but I'll, I'll say it in a different way. Virtual reality is defined technically as using technology to create a simulated three-dimensional world that you can interact with. So I think the immersive part is there, but I think you also have to be able to interact with it because what I understand about a true virtual reality experience, it requires really two things. One is technology that allows three-dimensional images that are life-size. They have to be surrounding you. That's the immersive. If it's smaller, then it's not that true immersive feel. But also the technology has to have the ability to track your eye movements, your head movements, your hand motions, so that it can adjust those images to reflect your change in perspective. It can react to what you're doing and, again, preserve that illusion of reality. So if those two aspects, you know, the 3D images and the ability to react to what you're doing, that's really that true VR experience. Yeah, I think that both those pieces are really important. It is interesting, though, Tom, because you mentioned that this seems like it's being talked of as like the new, new thing, but it really does have a, a long history depending on, and especially depending on how you think of it, because some people might say it goes back to like, you know, like a hundred years to the stereo optican notion of, you know, putting something and being able to see it in 3Ds or even a, a view master. But I remember, I mean, it seems like a good 15 or more years ago that you could go to some shopping malls and enter into this, this area and put these goggles on that were sort of famous for making people nauseous where yep. you can see polygons and interact with them and be inside a world. And so looking back, it's pretty primitive, but it was the technology you had. And now in the same way that, you know, gaming has improved immensely and all of that, I think that the possibilities of using virtual reality are what have got people really excited. And I think that you've undoubtedly done more research. So I'm sort of talking more in the concept, but when I hear people talking about it, they say, it's amazing. You can go up to the edge of the cliff and you have exactly the same, you know, you feel you're on the edge of the cliff and your experience is there because the graphics are so good 
good and the responsiveness is so good. Which is what I think is different. That's one of the things that makes it different and or better than I think it has been in the past. But you're right. In terms of history, some level of virtual reality has been around for nearly 100 years. I mean, there were people in the 50s and 1950s doing movies that had virtual reality elements, I guess is the best way you'd put it. There were some people who would create literally these 3D models of all sorts of things, of towns, of cities. There was one movie where they obsessively filmed every piece of a particular street in a city so that you could see every angle of it to create that immersive experience. The gaming things you're talking about, I remember Sega and Atari having headsets back in the 90s that people would use. They were popular for for what they were, but they didn't really go very far. But I'll tell you, my first real experience with virtual reality doesn't really seem like virtual reality now that I look back on it, but at the time, it was really thought of as virtual reality, and that's Second Life. And I don't know if, Dennis, you were ever ventured into Second Life, but there was a time where I was really interested in that. And I think, granted, I didn't even pay attention to it for this episode, but I think it's still around. But Second Life was designed to be a fully immersive virtual world that you could go and talk to. And I remember there may, for all I know, still be a Second Life Bar Association where lawyers could go and your avatar would sit there and talk with other people and uh, you could fly anywhere you wanted to and build your own house and have your own area. And it was, I think, for the time, that was around the late 1990s, that was the thing. It was really cool to be able to have your own world and walk around in it. You know, now I play online games where I have essentially the same experience, albeit in a gaming situation, but it doesn't quite feel like a virtual world. It just feels kind of like a cool game that I'm able to walk around in. Yeah, and you were talking when we were in Chicago uh, about your memories of your least favorite virtual reality experience, which I think was called Mission to Mars. Mission to Mars at Epcot Center is horrible. (laughs) It's a horrible ride. You heard it here first. Yeah, you still remember my wife putting a cold towel on you to try to get you uh, to feel less nauseous. That is that is more of an admission than we should be making to a national audience. But, thank but, you, but I think that was always been one of the concerns with virtual. It's true, uh, you know, with virtual reality, and people talk about it now as saying that probably for most people you can do maybe about an hour. And so I think some of the improvements have been along that thing. You know, people get nauseous, people get dizzy, that sort of thing. And so I think. You're, you're seeing some of those improvements. I mean, I guess I was thinking about what got everybody so interested, because it seems like this really kind of blew up in a way uh, recently where everybody's talking about it. I sort of have the sense that, you know, it's a new year and people need to come up with like the new <laughs> new thing and they've kind of seized on this. But there's a lot of pre-announcement of, of products. I think the 3D TV a couple years ago, people thought that was going to be the big thing and it kind of didn't happen. And the 4K TV, which kind of hasn't happened yet. So I think virtual reality says, like, one of these things is going to hit big. I think there's a lot of interest in in the gaming world. And I think in a funny way, we're at a place where we're all talking about it and excited about it, but it kind of isn't quite here. The things that you talk about, Oculus Rift, the Samsung product, and some other things aren't exactly out yet. 
Well, they're not out yet. Uh, well, the Samsung Gear VR is out, and if you own a Galaxy phone, you can use that right now if you want to. The Oculus Rift, like you mentioned, that's what most virtual reality enthusiasts are waiting for. It's not going to be cheap. It's going to be $1,500. And not only that, but they recommend that you have a very high-powered gaming PC to go with it. In fact, the maker of Oculus Rift doesn't even recommend you use a Mac and says that right now, Macs are not powerful enough to handle what the Oculus Rift needs to be able to do, which I think was kind of interesting. There's a, another tool called HTC Vive that's out there, and um, it's available as well. But, you know, frankly, I think that it's not here in the sense that it's freely and easily available to everyone. I think that to do it really well, the technology is pretty expensive. And I think also that, I don't want to say that the tools are limited, but I would say that we're still in early days of getting apps and movies and other kind of multimedia experiences to go along with these tools. So it's still in its infancy, I think, in terms of the content that's available. So that's why I would say that it's not really here. But I would say that it's the closest that it's been in a really long time. I think we're really getting to the point where we're going to have some interesting options coming along in the next couple of months. And when you talk about it being in its infancy, I mean, I think that the fact that probably the most common way people are right now, as we speak, experiencing virtual reality is through a device called Google Cardboard tells us a lot. And I think you, as I recall, Tom, you actually did a little Google Cardboard experiment. Well, I own a Google Cardboard, so let's talk about what that is. So Google decided to provide, I guess, uh, virtual reality for the masses. It wanted to be able to provide a virtual reality experience without having to put out the amount of money that you're going to have to put out for the Oculus Rift or for other tools. So Google Cardboard at first was free. Google was selling it for free. Now there are a number of dealers and manufacturers who will sell you a Google Cardboard. I bought mine for $35, and it literally is made of cardboard. It comes unassembled. You put it together. It comes with two lenses. And it does remind me kind of of the stereo opticon that my grandparents used to have. But you assemble it and then you slide your phone into the front of it and you look through the lenses. And then there are a number. We'll talk about some apps later. I've got some recommendations for apps to use. But you use these apps. You look through the lenses. I would guess that those who are waiting for the Oculus Rift would call it a primitive experience, but it was still pretty awesome awesome to be able to see. I was really watching in 3D things happening on my phone. And I would say the experience was great. For $35, I'm kind of previewing my tip at the end, but I think the Google Cardboard is a worthy $35 to spend to just get an idea of what the whole thing's about. And I think it's important to talk in terms of what the range of VR is these days. So you go from that, the most simple thing, sort of holding in a way, your phone in front of your eyes to get the experience to these goggles or devices coming out soon. And then the range from running off your smartphone to having a dedicated system to probably some other things that are even more powerful in certain settings. There's a whole range. And obviously, uh, we've reached a point where the computing power we have, the software is able to really do some amazing things. I think people are really excited about it. But there is a little bit of concern, and there's a recent example at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona where people were given, I think it was the Google Cardboard, as I recall. No, it was, uh, the, it was the Oculus Rift. Oh, it was the Oculus Rift. It was the Oculus. A whole room of 
full of people like really digging the virtual reality. And while they were looking at it, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook himself walked down the aisle and nobody noticed until they were told and then they all went crazy. But I think that it's partially to show the point that the VR experience is just fundamentally immersive and arguably isolated. Because when you're in the virtual reality and you have the goggles on, you are in it. And what's going on in the outside world has very little impact on you. And so I, I think that's an important thing when you're distinguishing virtual reality from augmented reality is in the augmented reality, you would have a awareness of the outside world, I think properly done and with the apps and the movies and the ideas people have, when you go into the virtual reality experience, you are gonna be totally in it. Well, you're totally in it, but I guess I will differ from that by saying that a virtual reality headset does not necessarily include, it doesn't have a headphones on, it doesn't have a headset. So your ears aren't covered. Now there may be earphones that go with it and that allow you to hear things and be in that world in a better way, but it's not immersive in the sense that you can still hear what's going on in the world around you. I think it's important to note that the connection between Oculus Rift and Mark Zuckerberg is that Facebook owns Oculus Rift. They bought Oculus for $2 billion. So for those of you who are watching virtual reality, pay attention to the connection between Facebook and virtual reality because I think they plan to do a whole lot of stuff with that in the coming months and years. But I mean, I think that you're right. To be successful, it has to be immersive. You have to be able to lose yourself in it. And people playing the games, we've seen, I've seen people on stage playing games on one of these headsets where they'll literally just jump because something flew out at them from the corner of their eyesight. And it was so realistic and it was so much in their field of vision that it was scary to them. And um, I think that that makes for a very successful VR experience. I sort of take to heart, given my experiences on that ride at Epcot, I take to heart the fact that um, most people I've heard talk about VR can't watch it for very long without feeling dizzy or feeling nauseous. I'm interested to see if that's a problem that can be resolved either by just getting used to it or whether it's the technology itself that does it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether it's something that'll ever go away or that's something that will get better over time as we use VR more and more. Or we just evolve as a species to... Uh, <laughs> exactly. No, I, I think probably what you hear some people talk about is, uh, you know, because people are already freaked out that they're going, oh my God, I go to a restaurant and everybody at a table is on their iPhone looking at things. Nobody's talking to each other. They're all texting each other. And so, you know, obviously the next step that people worry about is that they're going to the restaurant and there's a whole table of people with VR glasses on who are not even interacting with each other in any sort of way. So... There is this notion that, especially with kids and in the gaming world, that this will create even more isolation. So so there are, you know, some issues out there with this. For me, I think people really get the idea of how gaming and virtual reality just go together really well. But there are a number of other examples. You can mention virtual reality, augmented reality in a variety of industrial and other settings and places where people need to do things where it might be dangerous or, or you have other issues. Some people are really intrigued by the notion of virtual reality as a way when people have, say, fear of heights or other phobias that might help 
you know, desensitize people to that because the realism of the experience. So lots of cool ideas associated with it. So those are some of the things I think of. Tom, you might have a few more. And then I think we hit the big question is like, does this matter to lawyers or how should it matter to lawyers? Well, I don't really, I mean, that's where I was going to go is let's talk about walking into a courtroom and seeing a jury that had VR headsets on them and that that's how they were consuming all of the information in a trial. Because I think that probably the best use right now of VR for lawyers is in showing things to a jury, showing evidences to them, being able to take them to the scene of an automobile accident or to show them a building that suffered storm damage that was a subject of an insurance claim or fire damage or something like that. But effectively with VR, the days of the jury taking a field trip to go and see the scene where something happened are over. You don't have to do that. You can actually be taken there while sitting in the jury box. Some of the other ways that it can be used in the courtroom is, let's say a juror can't appear live to testify. You don't want to take their video deposition. You don't want them to show up on the two-dimensional television screen. So you have them appear by virtual reality. They're sitting in a chair. You're watching them just as if they're sitting there right in front of you, but they're really somewhere else taking advantage of VR technology. You've got the ability now to move or manipulate exhibits. Let's say that there's a, you know an aviation case where a part of the plane comes at issue. You can create a virtual reality model of that particular piece from the aircraft, and the jury can actually turn it around and look at it from all angles and, and really have it without actually touching it and damaging the actual exhibit. I was reading an article about a jury, or maybe the idea that a jury could attend a trial by virtual reality. Let's say that, that you have a criminal trial somewhere, and um, there's a change of venue issue because the area around them knows too much about the case. Instead of bringing the case to the jury, why not bring the jury to the case and have them all a, a jury from out of town sitting by virtual reality? I think that's a little crazy, and that's probably not something I would see very often. But I think that the possibilities are out there for, for virtual reality to really be used in the litigation field. And I think there's probably some other uses for other types of lawyers as well. Dennis, have you thought of any that we might mention? I mean, I think of crime scene. I mean, definitely. But that falls in your line where you have a case that's going on. You mentioned others that in, in certain cases, if it's done right, could be really powerful, persuasive stuff. You might be able to, instead of showing jurors, you know, the uh, the video of the dry, you know, two-dimensional video of somebody testifying, you could actually give a sense of that person through virtual reality. Again, somebody walking in the courtroom would probably find it bizarre to see everybody in goggles. But so I see that. I'm kind of intrigued because I, I think that it has the, uh, the capability to kind of stretch the notion of physical presence. So you alluded to that, say, well, if somebody actually can't be there, maybe we can do that. So maybe it has potential in the world of conferencing in a more immersive way. And that might make sense for certain things. For those of us who are on conference calls who, you know, multitask like crazy, if we're in a, you know, virtual reality conference, we're going to be immersed in it and people are going to be able to see that we aren't paying attention. But I think there could be some possibilities there where distance becomes an issue. And as we get more global, that can become important. And then I think, Tom, to go to your favorite issue is that in 
the world of virtual reality, maybe we have another place that important data is kept as another repository that people need to have some awareness of in ways that that maybe you and I don't see at this moment, but it does need to to be something that we think about. So I, I think there's a lot of things out there. I suspect that it's not going to be, you know, to get this type of evidence in or to use these things, I'm sure we're going to run to the same issues we did with new technologies, courthouses not being ready, you know, expense, that sort of thing, laying the evidentiary foundation. But to me, it's a, it's a simple step, you know, conceptually from what we're already doing and the same basic principles will apply. Yeah, so let's wrap this topic up by maybe offering some of our suggestions on how lawyers can get out ahead on virtual reality and to be ahead of the curve when things start to happen. For me, the easiest way to do this is to get a Google Cardboard. Go to Google. We'll put links in the show notes. Go to Google, buy a Google Cardboard headset. And there's a number of videos and apps out there that you can use. There's a bunch of videos that are actually on YouTube that are, if you just look at them, they are filmed kind of in 360 degree view, but you can also see them in virtual reality. There's an app called Verse, V-R-S-E, that has a number of short stories and some documentaries. Google has an app for Android users called Cardboard Camera, where um, you can actually take pictures in virtual reality. Uh, The New York Times has kind of jumped out to the front of this and has a lot of its stories and contents and movies and pictures in virtual reality in one of their apps. And then obviously there's actually some games for Google Cardboard. There's one called Proton Pulse, which is a shooter. You can do that with your phone. And then there's one that literally I'm never going to download and use called VR Roller Coaster, which simulates being on a roller coaster. And I will say thank you very much. I've already had enough of the rides on virtual reality. Uh, Tom, I think you just found my uh, Christmas present for this year. (laughs) The roller coaster. Well, you may feel free to return that gift. Dennis, (laughs) how about you before we wrap this up? I think you've given some good suggestions. So going simple, thinking this through, saying, is there some possibility here? Yeah, and I would say that as a lawyer, I mean, probably it's going to make sense for litigators, right? So let's let's just say that. But I would say, think of times you've done a field trip with a jury. Is this something that could be done better? Does it make a field trip that you like to do more possible? Are there crime scenes, reenactments, something where, you know, seeing real estate or a building uh, might be helpful? I think your example of, you know, airplane parts or, you know, God forbid that we walk inside somebody's mouth and see a dental procedure just to get a feel for that. But, you know, and what is that movie, Fantastic Voyage, where the people went through the human body? You know, so it's it's, you're sort of uh, only our own imaginations are are the limit. So I, I think that getting some simple ideas, realizing this is out there, realizing the intense interest and how if it catches on, it could become really significant and could give you know lawyers who are early into it to use it as demonstrative evidence could really captivate jurors in ways I think it's simple to understand and give you a definite advantage if you can figure out how to make it work in today's courtrooms. But If Google Gear is the way that does it, you don't have the same kind of technology limitations we used to have in courtrooms where they didn't even have enough outlet. So those are my thoughts, Tom. It will definitely be fun to watch. All right, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? 
ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. So some people I know have taken to writing their Wi-Fi password on a piece of paper and hang it on the wall in their house so that family and friends who come to visit can jump on the Wi-Fi. People use Wi-Fi on planes, restaurants, libraries, uh, doctors' waiting rooms, I've noticed recently, very popular with, with me. My daughter told me stories about when she was in Europe of college students traveling around who arrived at hostels, and they just walked around with their phones held out saying, Wi-Fi password, Wi-Fi password, like they were zombies, and, and she thought that was really funny. Uh, so I think that public Wi-Fi is definitely far from a safe space, and We've seen a lot of coverage of the many dangers. So we thought, having just uh, traveled to Chicago where people were using the heck out of public Wi-Fi and were getting some information and advice on how to do that, we thought we'd share some of our own Wi-Fi tips. So, uh, Tom, I've definitely allocated a little bit of time here for your response, for your frank opinions about the state, current state of airline Wi-Fi. But do you want to start with some of your favorite tips? No, I'm actually going to start with my frank opinion of airline Wi-Fi, which is I really hate to use it. To me, it's a necessary evil. I think you'll talk to some people from a security standpoint who say don't use it. I'm not going to go quite that far, but I will say that I think that the companies that provide our online Wi-Fi have a really long way to go before they're providing a good quality service. And I don't know what it is, but I, I use it because I need to be connected when I'm on a plane. Gone are the days where I'm sending, I'm tweeting from 30,000 feet, or I can't believe I'm sending an email while I'm in the air. That luster is gone, and now I just want to have a reasonably fast rate that is just not there because I think too many people in the plane are using it, and the companies can't keep up with it. That said, I have... Three tips, whether you use Wi-Fi outside of the house, whether you're on a plane, whether you're in Starbucks, whether you're in a hotel, the three tips that I have is first, for security purposes, use a VPN, use a virtual private network to secure your connection. There are commercial services like ExpressVPN. Your employer may already be providing you one as part of your computer setup. You may be forced or required to use it, and I think that's a good idea. No matter where you are, a public connection is inherently unsafe. We just heard a story about a guy who's using using the Wi-Fi on a plane and the guy behind him was able to jump onto his email and read all of his emails. Now, that wasn't just because the Wi-Fi was unsafe. He was using unencrypted email as well. But the fact was, if he'd been using a VPN, that wouldn't have happened. My second tip is, instead of using public Wi-Fi, get a portable Wi-Fi hotspot. Or, better than that, just use your phone and get a plan so you can tether it or create a Wi-Fi hotspot. You will need to get a data plan to do that but these connections are definitely going to be more secure than your public Wi-Fi. Third, and maybe a little controversial to some people, is I think that it's a good idea to set your phone to automatically connect to Wi-Fi network that it knows and trusts. And that's important. It needs to know and trust it. I would not have it automatically connecting to networks that you've not been on before and you don't know anything about them. But using Wi-Fi with your phone is really a good way to reduce the amount of data that you consume on your phone's plan. Google has recently 
recently released a they've released something called Project Fi, where it's a different phone service and it's designed to actually search out and be on Wi-Fi as much as possible. And as a result, you're paying much less for the data that you download, sometimes twenty to thirty to forty dollars a month rather than a hundred dollars a month for a data plan. So I think it's a good idea to spend as much time as you can on Wi-Fi securely to make sure that you're using that free bandwidth and not using up the data that's on your plan. Dennis, what about you? Yeah, I mean, we can't recommend VPN enough, but I'm sort of more simplistic in my approach. So my tips are going to be like, no banking on public Wi-Fi ever, ever, ever. I also do this thing where I, if I'm on public Wi-Fi, I will not, I will not go to a site where I actually have to enter a password. And so if I actually do that, then I will change the password immediately when I get home. So I think sort of being smart about what it is you use it for. And I would be really hesitant. I mean, I know this is a tricky thing, but if to do serious work or confidential things on public Wi-Fi, I just don't think that's a great mix. I think, you know, surfing the internet, you know, a little of this and that is okay. It can be helpful in certain things, maybe in some emergencies, but I think you just want to be really thoughtful about what it is that you use it for. And then I think you just got to be savvy about when the Wi-Fi networks come up about what ones you want to use. If it says free Wi-Fi, free public Wi-Fi, that's probably not a good thing. You want something that's identified to the place that you're at and the only thing with that name. So the restaurant Wi-Fi or, you know, that sort of thing. So I will take sometimes take chances on, on Wi-Fi, but usually I, all I'm doing is just looking at, you know, RSS fees or checking the web a little bit. Now it's time for that party shots, that one tip website or observation that you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So I'm actually going to do a part two to the parting shot that I gave in the last podcast and talk more about the Eero Wi-Fi system. Since we're talking about Wi-Fi, might as well keep the theme going. In the last podcast, I'll make an admission. I hadn't actually used my Eero yet. I had ordered it, but it wasn't here yet. I now have used it and installed it in the house. And I have to say, it is the easiest, most effortless way to get good, fast Wi-Fi throughout your house. I bought four of the units, a little pricey, but still around the cost that I would pay for a router and a couple of extenders or repeaters throughout the house. I put one in my office. I put three in the downstairs going from the master bedroom all the way across the house to the kitchen. What you do is you install the app on your phone and you use the app to set up each one of the devices. I was literally able to set my entire house up with Wi-Fi all the way across the house in 15 minutes. And it was so simple. And I will say the app shows me what my bandwidth is like. I've never had speeds like this before in all parts of the house. It creates this mesh network across the house that helps to distribute the speed and distribute the bandwidth to where I don't have dead spots anymore around the house. I highly recommend Eero. It's worked out very well for me. And I think if you're having trouble in your home or in your office getting Wi-Fi to extend across or in between floors or in areas where it's hard, it's definitely a good option. Dennis? 
Oh, I don't really feel I have a problem, but you've sold this so well. I'm convincing myself I have a problem and I need to get this. So I, th <laughs> I think you've been really successful uh, with this parting shot. So what I wanted to, to, in my parting shot, cover the uh, Leo Technology Resource Center, which Tom and I are part of, does a monthly roundtable blog post on Law Technology Today blog. Uh, the most recent one was called Can Wearable Technology Be Effective for legal professionals, and we'll put the URL in the show notes. But we had a group of people answer a series of questions about how they use wearable technology, how they think it might be effective or not for legal professionals. So a lot of different perspectives from people who, who use wearables, and I think good information and some great uh, suggestions for things to try there in that article. Well, I think all the roundtables that the uh, LTRC board does on Law Technology Today are good. They're all worth checking out. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I am Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. One of our goals this year is to answer more of your questions. So uh, be sure to send us your questions, and we'll feature them on the podcast in the future. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network. <laughs>